We're in a series at the moment called uh, What You Believe Matters, and uh, it's based uh, in our statement of faith. And today we're looking at the role and the work of the Holy Spirit and applying the realities of the new life that's found in Jesus to Christians. The, um, hey, we're going to use that voice-activated thing, Mark, where I go click, and yeah, um, nice. Um, yes, realities of new life found in Jesus, where the initiating and the immediate work of the uh, Spirit in the regeneration of people, in their sanctification and their uh, preservation to the heavenly kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our statement of faith. And, and while that is our statement of faith around the work of the Holy Spirit, we're probably going to just cast down that a little wider and, and, and wander back through history a little further. But hey, let's pray and then we'll get to work. Let me God, we thank you again. Uh, as Sam has said, here we are gathered, your people. You've called us out of our old life into this new life. And uh, we get to share it with each other. We get to, to, to worship you together. Um, and all of this, as we gather, there's this, there's this strange agreement amongst us. And that's the work of the Spirit, that it would unite us, that, that we look across the room and we would see people who we would normally have nothing to do with, but for the fact that we're all united in Christ. And the Spirit is the bond of that that brings us together. This morning, as we look into your word, we pray that your Spirit, as we do every week, would stir our hearts uh, would lead us in conviction, would comfort us um, in truth, and, and would warm our hearts with affection for you as we look at your word this morning and what you have uh, to say to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now, uh, always risky when you're going to kind of throw to the crowd, when you're going to ask for audience participation, because you're kind of not too sure. Uh, you're going to get what you want. Uh, you're sort of throwing your trust into you people, but um, we'll see how we go. And if you know if we don't get it, I'll work out how to recover. Um, but the question I'm going to ask, you've got to answer this question correctly to be an Australian, like it's on a citizenship test. So if you don't get this right, we've got some problems uh, in this room. So who can tell me who Don Bradman is? Best cricketer ever. Uh, what's he most famous for, though? Scoring zero. Scoring zero. <laughs> That's right. His batting average of 99.94%. Went out for a duck in his last innings. Man just needed to make four runs. That's all he had to do. Not a big ask, uh, but he didn't get there. Okay, they're playing at, playing at the Kennington Oval in London. Who took the wicket of Don Bradman. Come on, you English souls. Lad by the name of Eric Hollies. He took 44 test wickets, but it's Bradman's wicket that he's most famous for. Now, who was standing at the other end of the pitch, uh, at, the, at the non-striker's end, when this... I know I've got no hope here because you didn't know who Eric Hollies was, but... Go on, who, could, does anybody know who the other batsman was when Bradman went out for that duck? Not Chapel. <laughs> <laughs> Lindsay Hassey? No, Arthur Morris. Yeah. Now, did you know that Arthur Morris went on to make 196 runs 
in that innings. He led Australia to victory over England. Three days. See you later, Poms. Thanks for coming. Actually, we came. We were over there. But, um, yeah, that's what took place. And uh, I imagine old mate Arthur Morris, who made 196 runs and set up Australia win, probably from time to time, feels a little grieved, feels a little bit overlooked, somewhat faded into the background because of what took place with Don Bradman. Well, given what we already know, what we've already looked at, what we've already investigated, what we've already discussed in this series about the, the oneness of God and that all, that all three persons make up the Trinity, they're all co-equal in their divinity, uh, co-equal in their eternal uh, being. They act in unity of purpose and inseparable mutual operation. I think the Holy Spirit could mount a case to say on the odd occasion that he feels a little like Arthur Morris, over, often overlooked, faded in to the background of the conversation on the Trinity, and indeed in his relationship with the very church that he breathed into life. Like, if you're a Christian, it's only because of the work of the Holy Spirit. He's the one whose role it is to initiate saving grace into your heart. It's, it's his work, it's his job to illuminate uh, it with the truth of the gospel, to show you the nature of your sin, and, and at the same time show you the nature of the righteousness of Christ and the redemptive power of Jesus to go and deal with that sin. He is the one who then seals that regenerate heart immediately with his presence and the power of God. You know, once given, never taken. Nor do you need, as some people might say, some kind of weird second blessing, like he didn't quite get it right the first time. And he is the one who, having sanctified you positionally before God, which we would call justification, he then fills you with his presence as an advocate or a helper or a comforter or a counselor, depending on what translation of John 14 you are reading, so that you can continue in the pursuit of holiness, so that you can have the confidence and the courage to bear witness to the gospel about Jesus. That's what we read at the end of this passage we looked at today in John 14, 25 to 26, right? And every time you feel like quitting because, you know, dealing with sin is hard, and every time you feel like quitting because bearing witness to Jesus is hard, the Holy Spirit advocates with your heart. He argues with it to say it's not about your goodness and your greatness, but Jesus's. Because no matter what your heart says to you, no matter what the world says to you, I say sealed. I say adopted. You have the position of sonship with the Father. So get a grip, big boy. And press on, press on in the pursuit of holiness and bearing witness to Jesus. And he is the one having united us to a Christ, applied that position of firstborn son to God the Father, unites us to each other as brothers and sisters. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And guess what? You did none of that. Not one bit. It's all the work of the Spirit. That's the planned grace of God, the Father. That's how he draws people to himself. That's the accomplished grace of the Son. And the Holy Spirit applies it 
to your life. Like you could just read through Romans 8. There it is. Like I should have just read you Romans 8 this morning. How awesome is the Holy Spirit, right? And yet, as Gary Miller, he's a author, writer for the Gospel Coalition of Australia, he points out, he's actually the guy who told me about Arthur Morris, by the way, just confessions. Um, I didn't know myself either uh, until I read about it in this thing. So, you know, I'm with you. But he points out that the Spirit loves nothing more than to direct our attention to the beauty and to the power and the holiness of the Father and the Son. But that doesn't mean it's okay to neglect this spirit in our thinking, in our conversations, in our church life. We need a healthy uh, scriptural understanding and relationship with the Holy Spirit. So let's, let's take a little journey. While not as visible in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit, uh, the sending and deploying of him, has always been God's means of, of creating life, of, of bringing chaos, of bringing chaos uh, into order. And we read about that right out of the gate, Genesis 1-2, where the Spirit is, is hovering over the deep, uh, dark, uh, watery chaos, and then, and then just brings order and beauty, and he takes what is chaotic, and he creates things that we marvel at, and order and design and beauty, uh, things that just make us feel small when we look at them, um, and we just go, wow, that's, that's amazing. But think Garden of Eden. Just this beautiful, designed paradise in a chaotic, crazy world. The Holy Spirit has always been how God gifted people for service, like uh, Basil. And this dude's name, for the life of me, I can't pronounce it. A holier or something like that. But I tell you what, I was, I was talking to John earlier. When I get to heaven... I am pretty sure when I meet these people, the first thing they're going to say is, dude, my name goes like this. Like, get it right. We've got another four million years together. But anyway, the Holy Spirit has always been the person who gifts people for service, fills them, uh, these two lads, filled them with artistic and architectural genius to craft and to build the tabernacle, like all that tapestry, all, that, all those gold inlaid things. Read about it in Exodus 31 to 35. A, 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 a place where God, God's presence would dwell with his people. A convergent space of sorts. He has always been... The Holy Spirit has always been how God has raised up and empowered individuals. People like Balaam, Gideon, Japheth, Samson, Azariah. Read about that through Judges and Chronicles for special acts of speaking. And and, and the Holy Spirit anoints leaders, spiritual leaders like kings such as Saul and David and prophets. All 12 of them. We won't list them. We don't have time. He's always been a God. He's always been... God's power and presence amongst his people. However, since Pentecost, an event that prophets like Joel and Ezekiel and Isaiah spoke of that that we find recorded in Acts 2, like our brother Luke uh, put that in there for us, the Holy Spirit has operated since that moment in a more democratized fashion, a more universal fashion. All believers now live in a personal relationship with the Spirit, not just particular individuals for particular tasks at particular times. And he permanently dwells with them, and he speaks with them, and he infuses life into our hearts, enabling us and transforming us to be more like Jesus. 
and holding us in place until the day that that is complete and we see it for its full glory. That's what's described again in Romans 8 and we read about it in 2 Corinthians 3. That's the work of the preservation of the spirit to to preserve us to the heavenly kingdom of God. And while the spirit is at work in the scriptures from, from Genesis right through to Revelation, there's probably no better place in the Bible to learn about the, the sometimes uh, overlooked, faded into the background, and admittedly probably the most mysterious person in the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, than John 14 to 17. This is the upper room discourse, which takes place the night before uh, Jesus is going to die. So the subjects that Jesus uh, chooses to leave uh, the last and lasting uh, impression on his disciples are ones that are probably pretty crucial for the Christian life. Our reading today comes from John uh, 14 to 15, but we could have easily eavesdropped anywhere um, along this uh, farewell discourse as Jesus teaches his disciples about the, the new era of the Spirit. Well, in our passage today, Jesus gives us uh, three significant pictures of the Holy Spirit, who he is, uh, what he does, and, and by kind of uh, inference, how to receive what the Spirit gives, which is actually uh, Tim Keller's breakdown of this passage, because I was kind of drowning in information and possibility and that. Oh, and I'm just using your outline, brother. And uh, for someone who's overlooked and faded into the background, uh, there's an extraordinary amount of content and information about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, who, who he is. In verse 16 to 17, Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, Uh, to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells within you and will be with you. Here in verse 17, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as a him, as a person. He's not a force like we we find in things like Star Wars. Uh, He's not an impersonal it but a him, a person. For Jesus, as he speaks of the Holy Spirit, he speaks of him in terms of being a person. And in verse 16, Jesus has told the disciples that he will ask the Father to send another uh, parakletos, another helper, um, which the, yeah, the ESV is translated helper, with it, and he translates it with a capital H. I love it. Some other translates go for counselor and advocate. Um, but, but it's the word another in this sentence that's key. Another helper. Jesus says, I will send another, and the meaning of that word is someone who is just like me. Someone with the same essence, someone with the same claims to divinity. I'm going to send another divine person. And then down in verse 18, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And then in verse 23, he says, we will come to you. Jesus and the Father are going to come to you. Who's this we? What's going on here? Once again, we come to a picture of the Trinity. When Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, he talks in terms of inseparable operation and unity of purpose. The Holy Spirit is a member of the Trinity So he is a divine person, and if he comes to us, then the Father has come to us, then the Son has come to us. Now, when the Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit as a person, of course it does not mean uh, the exact same thing when it speaks of us as people. 
It's seeking to accurately represent and give this member of the Godhead the quality of a living being. And so, so Bible writers give that kind of quality to him. We read, Paul tells us that the spirit can be grieved, can feel sadness. It's Ephesians 4. And, 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 and the spirit can speak on behalf of. It's Paul in Romans 8. He can bear witness. Again, Mark's gospel talks about how the spirit speaks. The spirit is creative. It's got creative attributes. And the spirit has a mind. Read about that in Romans 8.27. So the Holy Spirit is a divine person like the Father and like the Son, which is how he gets described in other places like Psalm 139.7 and Hebrews 9 and Acts 5. And on occasion there uh, in the Bible, we will see that the divinity of the Spirit is, is inferenced by the fact that his name's interchangeable with God or, or he's referenced in the same content as the Father and the Son. Like when in Matthew 28. Go and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Rather alarmingly, a recent study of Christians said only 60% of people who identify as having a biblically shaped faith see the Holy Spirit as a living being and not merely just a force, a symbol of God's presence or his power and his purity. And it's important that we understand the Holy Spirit as a divine person and not merely just a force, an emanation, some kind of thing floating in from out of town. So that when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, you are not getting some kind of nebulous, impersonal force, but literally God in all his essence dwells right in the very core of your life. This is what Jesus has promised on repeat through the gospel of John. I just think about that. I don't think we think about that enough. I know I don't. It should humble and thrill you. This is how God and humanity are reconciled, are brought together, are no longer separated. This is intimacy with God. It's, it's your reality. You have become convergent space. You have become a temple, a temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul says in Corinthians 6, 9, 19. Now, sadly, this verse is often used, um, this is how I got to know this verse, to try and shame Christians into moral behavior. Like, don't go and get drunk or smoke or sleep around with too many chicks or whatever. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. And they're all legit concerns. You should look after yourself. Smoking's dumb. You should have moral purity and all these sort of things. But it's not what Paul is on about right here. They may be symptoms, but it's not what Paul's on about. And Matt Chandler points out you need to be thinking. You need to be thinking the way Paul's thinking. You need to be thinking Garden of Eden, convergent space. You need to be thinking Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and the temple, places where God's presence was, was there that intersected with creation and people in a unique way. Paul is on about the fact that since Jesus destroyed the power of sin and the law on the cross, which saw the veil in the temple torn in two, so that space is now open to everybody. It's not, it's not some little secret space for just a, a, a particular few. We are now 
We are now the place of convergent space. We are now where God dwells. God dwells in your heart. And the Holy Spirit is the means through which that is applied personally and relationally. It's what Paul's trying to convey to uh, and communicate in the over 160 references of being in Christ. It's what Peter's describing in 2 Peter uh, 1, 3 to 4, when he says, we have been made partakers in the divine nature. Holy Spirit is the spirit that comes into your life with qualities of a divine person, not just an impersonal force. And he brings dead people to life. He awakens and matures faith. And he brings us boldly and intimately into the presence of God, making peace where there once was war. And Tim Keller points out that this means, if that's true, then there is no wound in you that cannot be healed. There's no brokenness that cannot be repaired. And there's no binding habit that you can't be freed from. The Holy Spirit wants to bring vitality to that weariness. The Holy Spirit wants to bring peace to that chaos. The Holy Spirit wants to transform you out of death to life. If he can turn the deep chaos of the world in creation into beauty and order, then I am sure that he can restore whatever's going on in your heart. To be full of the Spirit is not to have uh, more quantity like you would with gas or liquid or amps we're dealing with a person not a force so to be full of the spirit is to get to know a person it's to be full of a relationship like 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 being married if you're married nothing nothing makes you more married or less married legally like once you're married you're married but there are times where you just marvel at this relationship and there are times where it's as plain as cardboard being filled with the spirit is like that a lot of time it's it's plain slow hard work of growth of having the spirit advocate in your life and then there are times where you just can't describe the joy which means it's not about performance and show it's not about getting up here and, and, and saying look at how filled with the spirit I am it's about growth and intimacy. That's how the Spirit sanctifies us, which brings us to what he does. And I've kind of wandered uh, into this already a little bit. The work of the Spirit is pretty complex and multifaceted. But in our passage uh, here where Jesus says the Holy Spirit, uh, what Jesus says the Holy Spirit does in verse 16, is Jesus promises the Holy Spirit is with you forever. And the you in this verse is plural, but it's kind of like a, a collective plural. Like the, I think the only people on the planet that have a word that it's hard to translate, but if you live in, in Southern America, you can say y'all. Yeah, that's what it is. Y'all, y'all people, collective people. Which means the Holy Spirit put you into a community, y'all. He's creating new people, not merely new individuals. Which means he binds us together in a spiritual bond of infinite depth, Keller says. Because he's the bond. 
Not just something like a statement of faith. Not just, not just if we would all dress the same, but the presence of the Spirit. So no matter what kind of culture or what kind of background or education, no matter what football team uh, you might barrack for, the people in the seats around you, if you look around at them, you, you share a, a uh, infinite deep bond. They are your eternal brothers and sisters. So no matter what's happening in your life or no matter where you are in the world, you instantly have a community that understands you. That's why if you walk in here for the first time, you're not alone. You, you already kind of know. And you know this. Like if you meet a Christian for the first time, you don't have to swap kids' photos. There's something that's already there, right? And it's not that the Holy Spirit is trying to make us all the same, not, not one bit. In fact, it's quite the opposite. He's not trying to make us all the same. He's trying to make us more like Jesus. And he's trying to make us more like ourselves. This is the sanctification, that you become the person that God designed you to be. Christians are not made in a factory and forged and forced into some kind of homogenous mold. They are a work of the Holy Spirit where he maintains your uniqueness while enriching it with a heart and mind and the character of Jesus. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians 2 that we are his workmanship, we are his poetry. There's something beautiful and unique about each and every one of you that the Holy Spirit is working at. And as we've seen already, Jesus says in verse 17 that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. And in verse 16, he says that he's an advocate or a, or a helper and what Tim Keller calls the ultimate friend. That's how he translates that word. And he is Jesus describing what the Holy Spirit does. Firstly, what the Holy Spirit does is he illuminates truth in your heart. And down in verses 25 and 26, Jesus gives a kind of a two-layer um, description of that promise about the work of the Spirit here, that he will inspire and illuminate the apostles as they bear witness to Jesus, and they will go and write Scripture and by extension, the same spirit is in all believers. And he will help us then understand that truth and apply it to our lives. So Jesus is speaking to the disciples. It's the first layer who have heard his teaching and, and, and will, continue. He will continue to hear his teaching after his death, before he goes up to his ascension. And Jesus says the work of the spirit uh, will be to bring into your minds, you 12 lads, not just kind of abstract uh, personal thoughts, but concrete truths that I have revealed and that I have taught. This is how the spirit of truth went about creating the scriptures that we have, the Bibles that we have. As they go about the, the work of Jesus has for them, they will be inspired by the spirit. The truth that the spirit supplies is the whole truth about Jesus. That's what he's talking about here. So a second layer is when you and I then go and read the Bible with the help of the Holy Spirit, he illuminates that truth in our hearts, not merely intellectually, but relationally and emotionally and transformationally. You find yourself being read by the word as it touches uh, in your heart and, and, and hits you with either comfort or conviction. He tells you about ultimate reality. He points you to the sufficiency of Jesus, the love of the Father, and your desperate need to delight in both. The all truth is not 
every known fact in the universe, the answer to every question that you have, like who am I going to marry? What car should I buy? Although you can find peace about those things through prayer, the truth that the Holy Spirit supplies to you and I is the truth, the whole truth about Jesus that we find in the scriptures that he authored. So that means you can never pit the Spirit against the Bible. Like you don't get to say, oh yeah, Bible, yeah, <laughs> it was, you know, four or five, whatever, thousand years ago, but I feel, I feel the Spirit is telling me something. Else. You can't do that. That's what you ate for tea last night. That ain't the work of the Holy Spirit. A passage also tells us that the Holy Spirit works in our lives as the ultimate friend, the advocate, the helper, the the counselor. Jesus says the Holy Spirit is another helper or advocate or counselor. It's a, it's a rich word. It's hard, it's hard to translate, which is why we end up with so, so many different words to try and capture it. But Keller, he said, look, I've come up with this phrase. He's the ultimate friend. And he gets it from the word parakletos, which is a word made up of para, which means uh, someone who's always beside you, someone who's always for you. And kletos, which means to declare or to argue. So Holy Spirit is a friend who is willing to be with you always and for you always. And at the same time is declaring things about you and arguing with you about these things, which is why I like advocate. So we like, we like a friend who sticks closer than a brother, right? Always with us, always for us. And a friend who declares and argues for us on our behalf, always kind of sticking up for us. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But it's also the work of the Holy Spirit to argue with us, to be declaring stuff to us, arguing with us. Or more specifically, to argue about or make known the enemies of our hearts. So as John writes in 1 John 3, 20, when our hearts condemn us, either by making us feel unworthy of you know, the love of God or, or making us feel like we don't need the love of God, that we don't have a problem we've seen to deal with. John says, our God is greater than our hearts. How? What's going on here? Well, Paul writes in Romans 8, 16, that the Spirit bears witness to our spirit that we are the children of God. This is, this is the Spirit arguing with us, advocating with us, telling us what is ultimately real about us. It's a picture of a Holy Spirit. He's a star witness whose testimony is like a smoking gun, irrefutable evidence that you are children of God, that you are justified, that you are deeply loved, and yet at the same time, sinful. Sinful but saved. Wicked but loved. The Holy Spirit argues and illuminates our hearts to the truth of our sin and initially to the righteousness of Christ, and then he continues to convict us in the areas of our lives that need cleaning up and working on. That's the sanctification of the Spirit, helping us with blind spots or, or, or pointing out our weaknesses where we need Jesus to come along, saying you need help, you need to be humbled. But the Holy Spirit also has to argue with our hearts around the fact that we are deeply loved and accepted, that we are children of God. And that is unchangeable forever. Like we like to self-loathe when we stuff things up. 
But the Spirit is saying, no, you've you got to remember who you are. You've got to remember who your Father is, who your Savior is. You're eternally loved. So he advocates with you, for you and with you. And he never, ever gives up. He never, ever stops. He's constantly with you, by your side, always and forever. He's working to your completion. He is working to your sanctification, telling you uh, about what your heart dreads and, and, and also reminding you what your heart doesn't want to even dream up. The work he began, Paul writes in Philippians, that work he's going to complete. You cannot outsin grace. You cannot outgrow grace. The Spirit is for you in accusation and temptation, arguing with your heart that it even needs comfort or it needs conviction. But what the Spirit will never do is leave you alone, leave you as an orphan, leave you feeling like you don't have a father or a family. All right. Uh, let's wrap this up. How do we receive all this work of the Spirit? Like I said, you, we don't initiate it or affect it, but we do respond and, and, and are obedient to it. You don't earn it, you receive it. Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as another helper, advocate, counselor, whichever word you've got there, just like him, which means the work of the Spirit will be to point us back to our first advocate, it is Jesus who has acted on our behalf before the Father to satisfy uh, the demands of the law uh, against sin and to turn aside the wrath of God from us. That's what the Bible says that Jesus has done for us. And now, uh, John in 1 John 2, he points out that while the Holy Spirit is in us to help us not sin, if we do, if we recognize we've messed up, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's up there advocating for us. What's he doing? So while the Holy Spirit is working on your heart, Jesus is there with the Father saying, yeah, I see that fool, Mason. Yeah, he sinned again. I know that, and despite his best efforts and desires, he'll probably do it again. But let me remind you, Father, of the mercy you provided at the cross in me. I have paid the wages of his sin. I have satisfied the demands of the law on his behalf, and he's trusted, and he's placed his faith in that work, in those promises that I did on his behalf. I have paid for his sin, so it would be unjust. It would be against your very character to ask for another payment, to double dip. I demand that he remain in his standing before you as acquitted, as a child. Your justice demands that he be loved forever. Jesus ain't sitting up there pleading, hoping for mercy. That, that mercy is the cross. Now he's sitting there talking to the Father about his character and saying, hey, be faithfully consistent. In order to have the work of the second advocate, you need to accept the work of the first advocate. This is the mystery of the Trinity. 
Is it the spirit who illuminates your heart of that need, warms your heart with affection for Jesus and indeed the Father? He, he's pointing you to it. Jesus is accomplishing it. And then the spirit just keeps reminding you of your new status as a child of God, forever loved, forever changed. Convergent space. Let's pray. Loving God, we kind of just have to pause for a moment just to think about what we're talking about. That you would come and dwell and live. We, we know you come and dwell and walked amongst us in Jesus. But this news that you come and you dwell in us through the person of your spirit, that all the realities of God would be personally made known to us is just something that is extraordinary. Something we could drink from for a long time and never really fully quench the joy of it. Our prayer this morning, Spirit of God, is that you would aliven this more and more, that this relationship we have with you would be deepened that we would seek to spend time with you in the word, that you would talk to our hearts, that you would remind us of who we are, and that you, would, that you would hold us in place until we get to see Jesus. And that ain't our reality. If we don't know what it is to know what it is to, to be this place of, using this phrase, convergent space. I pray that you would illuminate those hearts to this reality. And in, and in confronting them with their need and in confronting them with their own sin, that just beautifully at the same time that you would just expose them to your love and your mercy and your eternal justice. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.